in this lecture I'm going to be talking about the Rainbow Warrior case. I will be focusing on three issues. One is the way in which disputes get settled or handled or dealt with. Uh, a second is the relationship between treaty obligations and the law of state responsibility. And a third is the way in which the law gets clarified, the way in which the law gets developed. So I will be looking at the law in action. Uh, and for you to get a real sense of the law in action, you need to go to some of the primary documents to which I'll be referring. Uh, that will give you a better sense, particularly to the ruling that the Secretary-General of the United Nations made in 1986 and the award of an arbitral tribunal that was made uh, four years later in 1990. You'll find them in the UN Reports of International Arbitral Awards, Volumes 19 and 20. You'll find them as well on the website uh, of the uh, UN, UN, I think, .org slash law slash RIAA. Uh, and in uh, those reports you will get a good sense of what went on and, and of the processes. But let me give you a brief version of the facts first of all. In 1985, Greenpeace uh, had a vessel, the Rainbow Warrior, moored in Auckland Harbour in New Zealand. It was a British flag vessel. It was on its way to protest against French nuclear testing at Mururawa Atoll in the South Pacific. French um, security agents, members of the DGSE, or under orders from the DGSE, attached explosives to it. The, the ship was wrecked uh, and the second explosion on the ship killed a photographer, a Dutch national, uh, who went back into the ship to recover his uh, camera equipment after the first explosion. At first there was a denial by the French government of any involvement, but later they accepted that they were responsible. Two of the agents, uh, who were travelling on false Swiss passports as, an, as a honeymooning couple, were arrested. They were Dominique Prieur and Alain Marfat, uh, members of the Army of France. They were charged, first of all, with passport offences, but then later with murder and with uh, criminal damage to the vessel. The murder charge was reduced to a charge of manslaughter. They pleaded guilty to that. They were convicted and they were sentenced by the Chief Justice of New Zealand to terms of 10 years imprisonment. This led to a great controversy between uh, New Zealand and France. New Zealand um, said that the French agents had committed serious criminal offences. They must serve their term. France said they were carrying out orders. Uh, France was willing to accept full responsibility. It was willing to negotiate the terms of that responsibility. And <clears throat> it, having taken responsibility, its agents should be released. So there was that real issue. There was also the question of compensation for the family of uh, the photographer, Mr. Pereira, who had been killed in the explosion and question of compensating Greenpeace for the loss of its vessel. Uh, in addition, New Zealand claimed that uh, France was making it very difficult for 
it to export uh, much of its uh, produce into French territories and into Europe. France said there were very good reasons of a phytosanitary kind for that. There were no negotiations that ran through the last part of um, 1985 into 1986. Uh, and then on the initiative of the Dutch government, uh, the Dutch obviously had a real interest, uh, the two governments agreed to accept a ruling of the Secretary General. Uh, that ruling was to be both principled and equitable. That is to say, not according to law, but principled and equitable. The Secretary-General accepted that task and very quickly uh, he produced a binding ruling, which just three days later was turned into a number of bilateral agreements between the two governments. Now, what did those agreements say? The most straightforward one dealt with the trade matters. France said they weren't interfering, but the trade would go ahead uh, in the way that had been agreed nevertheless. So that matter was resolved. The matters of uh, the uh, compensation to the family and setting up a procedure for compensating Greenpeace were dealt with as well. And that was interesting that New Zealand included them among the mix of issues to be handled. Uh, they were not matters in respect of which New Zealand could make a claim of diplomatic protection no diplomatic protection on behalf of a Dutch citizen or on behalf of a uh, UK vessel, but they were part of the package and they were resolved. The um, Greenpeace claim was actually resolved by a private arbitration with three arbitrators. Uh, unfortunately, or some say unfortunately, that uh, award has still yet to be published. The Secretary-General um, uh, dealt as well with the much more important matters of just what was going to happen to France's responsibility. France agreed that it should uh, apologise, that its Prime Minister should write to the New Zealand Prime Minister an unqualified apology for the breach of New Zealand's rights under international law. Uh, there was agreement as well, sorry, there was a ruling as well, the parties agreed that there should be compensation. There was a ruling as well for seven million United States dollars to be paid uh, for compensation to New Zealand for all the damage done. And that damage, on one view of it, included not just the monetary costs of the police investigation and so on, but also the moral damage, the affront to New Zealand's sovereignty. But what then about the agents? As I said before, France said, we take all responsibility, the agent should be freed. New Zealand said, no, they must not be freed to uh, liberty, they mu must not be released to freedom. Uh, and, and what, in the end, the Secretary-General ruled was that they should be removed, the two agents should be removed for three years, they'd served more than a year in prison, they should be removed for three years to an isolated French atoll uh, island uh, in, in the Pacific. Uh, it was Howe Island, which I understand is not a Club Med type of island. So the two agents were sent there. The ruling said that they were not to leave the island uh, except with the mutual consent of both governments uh, and that uh, there was to be a system of reporting on the 
on their activities on the island. There was also the possibility of a visit to ensure that the agreement was still being complied with. Now, in fact, the two agents did leave the island before the um, time had expired. Uh, both of them were after a little more than a year. In the case of, uh, of, of uh, the gentleman, uh, uh, the claim was, and it was justified on the facts, that he had abdominal problems and they needed to be checked out in a f medical facility which was not available on that island. But New Zealand made various proposals for him to be checked and for a New Zealand doctor to see him and so on and so on. Uh, those arrangements were not um, satisfactory to the French and against New Zealand's protest he was flown back very hurriedly to Paris where he was checked out by the New Zealand medical people. In, in the case of uh, Dominique Prieur, uh, she became pregnant. Her husband, who was a military officer, was also serving on the island. Uh, the claim was that uh, she had to return to France, that there were not adequate medical facilities uh, uh, in, in the Pacific. Uh, people had been born in the Pacific for rather a long time without extensive medical facilities, I can attest. Uh, and it was also <coughs> added that uh, her father was dying and that therefore there were humanitarian reasons. Again, New Zealand objected. So they were removed. <clears throat> now that brought into play a third agreement that was signed back in 1986 on the ruling of the Secretary-General, an agreement that uh, provided for uh, arbitration, arbitration by three people, uh, and I was one of them and uh, therefore there are limits on what I can say about that process, but I will draw on the content of the award that was made. The arbitration followed a regular court-like or arbitration-like process. That is to say, the parties filed written pleadings after they'd agreed on the members of the arbitral tribunal. They uh, agreed on where the arbitration was to be held. Uh, they agreed on the registrar. They uh, then prepared oral argument, and we had uh, two or three days of oral argument um, in uh, New York, as it happened in uh, late October, early November 1989. Uh, now, it's worth just noticing the choices and the differences in methods of dispute settlement to pick up that topic. The uh, parties uh, have a choice. Parties to a dispute, to an international dispute, have a choice. Here you had them negotiating, you had third party intervention by the Dutch government, you had a ruling which was principled and equitable uh, following a very rapid written procedure with some discussions between uh, Secretary-General Paris de Cuellar and the representatives of each government. Uh, and then you have a ruling uh, which is essentially not reasoned. It just states the conclusions to which the Secretary-General had come in terms of his ruling. By contrast, in the arbitration we have a regular process of written argument Two, two rounds, oral argument, two rounds, uh, a decision according to law, according to the agreement signed and according to international law, and uh, that agreement, um, that, that, that ruling uh, had to be reasoned. And you'll find 40-odd pages of substantive reasoning in, in the award and in the accompanying uh, separate opinion, which I wrote. 
Now, to go away for the moment from methods of dispute settlement to, to the substantive issues of uh, treaty obligations and state responsibility, the law of state responsibility, let me pick up on elements of each ruling, that by the Secretary-General and that by the Tribunal. Uh, as I indicated, the Secretary-General was faced with an argument that France alone was responsible. It took the full responsibility and therefore the agents should be released. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, the agents were not released to freedom. They were placed under military uh, supervision. Uh, they were not to leave that island. They were not to return to France. They were subject to strict controls. Uh, and, and so the Secretary-General's ruling can be seen as affirming the proposition that there can be parallel responsibility. Responsibility, that is, both um, of the individual who might be prosecuted or might be sued, and responsibility of the state, uh, which might be responsible for making reparation, making apologies, and so on, as in the current case. And you find that proposition confirmed uh, in, in other cases as well. The very first case I sat on here in the International Court of Justice uh, between Bosnia and Serbia faced the argument by Serbia that uh, genocide, um, the crime of genocide, was enforced or was implemented, or breaches of it were, by the prosecution of individuals, and a state could not be held to be responsible. The obvious, if you like, of the French argument. The court said no, there could be parallel responsibilities, both responsibilities were at play. Individuals could be prosecuted, um, Miladic and Karadic and Milosevic and so on, uh, and, and as well uh, the state could be held liable if the facts could be established. So we have then that proposition uh, as clearly stated in terms of state responsibility. Now when we come to the 1990 award, things get rather more complex because we have an agreement uh, based on the ruling which says the agents are not to leave the island except with mutual consent. But what about situations of an extreme kind? What about a situation where one of the agents was swimming in the lagoon, uh, was attacked by a shark and had to be taken immediately, say, to Tahiti for medical treatment? Was it would it really be the case that uh, New Zealand could say no to that? Well, the tribunal uh, in 1990 addressed those issues and considered French arguments based on necessity, based on force majeure, based on distress. Uh, they were not impressed, the tribunal was not impressed by uh, two of those arguments, but it did think the um, distress argument uh, could be applicable and the tribunal stated the circumstances in which that was available. And, and you'll find that done in terms of the draft articles at that point being prepared by the International Law Commission. Because where was the tribunal to find uh, the law relating to state responsibility? It was to find it, it decided, well with the urging of counsel for both sides, was to find it in the excellent work being done within the ILC on, on the draft articles on state responsibility, work that had started way back, um, first of all in the 50s and then it got a new lease of life in the mid-60s and it was still running on in the 1990s with the final text being adopted in 2001. But we were involved as members of that tribunal with the law while it was still in the state of 
movement uh, still in the process of development through the ILC process involving government comments and scholarly comment and so on and judicial comment. So that's where the law was found and then it was a question of applying that law to the facts and so far as uh, Dominique Prieur was concerned, the woman, uh, the tribunal had no difficulty in concluding that there was no justification in terms of distress uh, for her being removed immediately without a good faith attempt by France to get New Zealand's consent. Uh, she was, her removal was unlawful and the failure of France to return her to the island after uh, the child was born and so on was also unlawful. So that was uh, an agreed position of the arbitrators. So far as um, the gentleman was concerned, Alain Mafar, uh, the tribunal you will see divided uh, and as I indicated earlier I'm not going to try to explain or criticise the award or the separate opinion on that point, you can read it for yourselves. But um, in, in, that, uh, in that case you find reinforced very strongly the proposition that uh, you've got to have close attention to the facts. I know that uh, law and legal principle and legal rules and legal arguments are very exciting. I've spent a lot of my time with that. But facts are sometimes king. Uh, there's a great um, New Yorker cartoon by uh, Leo Cullum. It's on the wall just above my head, actually, in my office here in the uh, Peace Palace, um, in which you have a lawyer earnestly pleading with a judge uh, no doubt pleading unsuccessfully with the judge, please, Your Honour, can we leave the facts to one side for a moment? Facts very often will prevent uh, the best of legal arguments. Uh, and, and so here too you've got to look carefully at the facts. So the court then um, made those rulings that uh, France was in breach. The next question was, in, in, in breach and not returning the two and in breach and removing uh, Dominique Prieur, uh, the next question was, so what? Uh, what remedy is to be applied? Well, there's a, a difference you'll see if you, when you read the material uh, within the tribunal about whether the three years had expired or whether it had been suspended. <clears throat> the tribunal, the majority of the tribunal took the view that the uh, period had run its course, even although the agents were off the island, and therefore there could be no question of returning them to the island. New Zealand was not asking for money. Uh, money had been paid the previous time. Uh, that fund had been established. Um, that monetary payment had been made. So what next? Well, the tribunal did two things. It said, first of all, that a declaration of breach was itself an important remedy, an important recognition that France had breached in a serious way its obligations. And, and there are lots of precedents for that kind of position in a number of cases. The first case in the International Court, for instance, the Corfu Channel case, you'll find the court making a ruling of that kind. But what next? What else? Was that going to be the end of it? Uh, was the remedy simply going to be that? Well, no. You'll find the tribunal in the last five paragraphs of the award under the heading Recommendation recalling the long relationships in peace and war uh, between New Zealand and France, uh, going back over 200 years um, of naval uh, exploration 
by the, by the Royal Navy from the, from the United Kingdom and the French Navy around the Pacific. And so the connections between New Zealand and France were long, they were valuable, they were positive, uh, as I say, in peace and in war. And, and there were various references by council to the dynamic of reconciliation that was at work. One of the council on the New Zealand side was David Longy, then the Attorney General, who had been Prime Minister at the time of the uh, uh, outrage in uh, 1985. And he was able to speak in a very personal way about uh, the relationship between France, how important it was and how shocking uh, this breach was. Uh, and, and so the tribunal, on the basis of that relationship, thought it would be a good idea to recommend that a friendship fund be established, a fund for the uh, improvement of friendly relations between the citizens of the two countries, and particularly, as it's turned out, the young citizens. Lots of youngsters have gone back and forth between French and uh, New Zealand territories within the Pacific and, and between Europe and uh, New Zealand as well. So there's been uh, that fund was established, or the recommendation for that fund was made. Uh, France was to make the first substantial contribution of the equivalent of two million US dollars, and that um, was agreed to by the parties. And exactly a year later, or a year minus a day later, Prime Minister Rocard was in New Zealand, and he and uh, Prime Minister Bolger. Um, signed the uh, agreement to set up that fund. And so there you see an aspect of dispute settlement that I think is interesting because there you're concerned with states, with parties to a controversy that have an ongoing relationship. Quite unlike, say, the relationship between the Pereira family, the family of the photographer and France, that's just one tragic event. I shouldn't say just, but it is one tragic event which has to be dealt with but which that has no continuing uh, relationship within it. Uh, uh, in the case of Greenpeace, there might be a continuing relationship, but not a relationship of the kind that you find between two states. In the case of New Zealand and France, on the other hand, there is that continuing relationship, and, and the tribunal was alert to that in a way that a smaller body can be. So there you see aspects of uh, dispute handling um, going off into the future. You'll find a reference as well in those last five paragraphs to this bringing to an end this unhappy affair, set affair, malheureuse. Um, and, and there was that element, let's uh, move on from this. This was not good, uh, but let's uh, make something of it and let's um, improve the flow of citizens between our two countries uh, to enhance the uh, relationship. Now, the, the final matter I just wanted to say a word or two about uh, was the way in which the, um, you see the law being developed here. Uh, I mentioned uh, the uh, law of state responsibility as it was being worked up by the International Law Commission through the uh, 1960s, uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, all the way through to 2001. Uh, the, uh, Tribunal, as I say, drew on the ILC drafts of the time, just as this, the International Court did in the uh, Gabčikovo-Nazimaros case between Hungary and Slovakia. Uh, and then when the International Law Commission comes to complete its text, it of course draws on the um, judgments and awards uh, that have drawn on its own work. 
And so you see a continuing circle of, of uh, argument and of development, with a lot of the lawyers arguing these cases being involved in uh, the ILC processes in one form or another as well. Uh, and, and so you see uh, the law in action, not law as a whole lot of dead stuff in the books, but you can take a physiological view rather than a patholo pathological view. These are, these are not dead things in the past, these are continuing bodies of law which continue uh, to develop. And, and the ILC text um, has been noted by the General Assembly on a number of occasions, and, and since uh, its adoption it has been uh, picked up um, by courts, including the International Court of Justice, a lot of arbitral tribunals, and by governments, and by national courts as well. Uh, you'll find that in the, in the documentation produced by the Codification Division of the UN Secretariat. So, you see here the law in action. Now, I should perhaps try to conclude with just a few thoughts about all of this. One is uh, to look at the law as it really does keep running, the law as it moves along. Uh, a second um, matter is to think hard about the issue that you're looking at. There's a great last line of Gertrude Stein, a notice, not, notable American uh, supporter of the arts and uh, writer. Uh, as she was dying, she uh, asked the question, what is the answer? Apparently she got no answer because she then said, what is the question? And then she died, and, and uh, always seeking for the right question, I think, is important. Looking hard at the facts as well is really important. And, and when you're looking at the law, thinking of the sources of the law, sure, the rules are very important. The detail of the uh, agreements that were produced first through the Secret Secretary General and then signed up by the New Zealand ambassador and the French foreign minister in uh, in. in Paris three days later, that detail is important. But there are other considerations as well, broader considerations that are relevant to the law. Uh, good faith, reasonableness, humanity, elementary considerations of humanity and so on. You'll find phrases like that, some of them in, in the uh, award in, in this particular case as well as in other places. So you've got to be aware of the fact that uh, the law operates in a broader context, it operates in a broader philosophical um, context. Uh, there's a great line of the poet uh, Shelley somewhere to the effect that uh, poets are the unacknowledged uh, legislators of mankind and so don't always keep yourself narrowly buried in the sources as you might read them in Article 38 of the Statute of the Court.